0: you are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So as we got a lot to cover, I'm going to go ahead and jump straight into this because there's a lot to be said about the Trinity. I would prefer to have not an hour, but multiple weeks to talk about certain aspects of the Trinity because when we're really dealing with a God that's indescribable, a God who reveals himself to us and for us, it requires a lot of time of reflection, a lot of listening to how God defines himself and reveals himself to us. So, what I want to open up with are some introductory considerations because the doctrine of the Trinity, maybe to utilize the spirit of Travis here for a second, is probably one of my all-time and favorite doctrines of theology, and it's It's not because it's something that we see all the time. I think that if we're honest, doctrine of Trinity is something that we neglect in our theology. It's something that we don't do, and there's plenty of reasons for that. And if you read various theologians, they'll tell you why that is. I want to focus on two primary reasons today as to why I think we within the church tend to avoid talking about the Trinity or going into any sort of deep expositions about it and allowing the Trinity to transform our theology. The first way that I have this is Trinity as Christology. And what I mean by that is that oftentimes the way that theologians will talk about the Trinity and the way that we even talk about it is that it's ultimately born out of Christology. If our faith is rooted and grounded in the second person of the Trinity and in his incarnation and the salvation that comes from Christ... Then, why is there really any point to talk about a Father or a Spirit? And so, oftentimes, the way that we really talk about the Trinity, it becomes a subcategory of Christology. Catherine Sodringer, in her systematic theology, put it this way: Eminence in God will bear a Christoform face. Those who behold Christ will have beheld the Father. In just these ways, begin, Trinity becomes a type of Christology. Elsewhere, she makes this statement, not all is Christology and not all is soteriology. If we really believe that God, being the triune God, has eternally subsisted as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we need not just solely talk about the Son. Of course, our faith is rooted and grounded in the Son, in His divine mission as being sent incarnate and dying for our sins. But nevertheless, there is Father, there is Spirit. And when we read Scripture, we see these persons being spoken all throughout of it. And so there is, has to be something to be said for a Christology that doesn't bear the Trinity, but Christology that flows from our doctrine of the Trinity. And that's really what I'm going to attempt to and try to espouse here today. The second reason why I think, and it's very close to the first, why I think we often don't talk about the Trinity is because for the past couple of centuries, really as, a, as a, something being born from the enlightenment, the way that we view epistemology, that is the purpose of knowledge, is pragmatic. What that means is that a knowledge of something finds its value, its worth, and what we can do with it. It's our mastery over it. To use a common epistemological dictum today, knowledge is power. We think that if we have a knowledge of something, that we can possess it and either have power over it or use that knowledge to have power over other people. But anybody who spent any time in a doctrine of God, and a doctrine of Trinity, a knowledge of God cannot have any sort of mastery. We cannot have mastery over God and we cannot have mastery over each other with our knowledge of God. So the question is what is the purpose of the Trinity? if we can't use it, if we can't wield it. Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, The Trinity and Kingdom, he focuses on this idea of wonder as being a, a source and grounding and rooting in our reflections of the Trinity. Because when we see God revealing himself to us, that knowledge of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, born out of his oneness, doesn't evoke mastery and invokes wonder. In a lot of ways, our theological reflections come to echo the very famous hymn of How Great Thou Art. When I in awesome wonder consider all the world Thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. That sense of wonder, that sense of display of God's majesty evokes something from us. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great thou art. A true theology born out of a doctrine of the Trinity, a true theology born out of the doctrine of God, evokes and demands wonder from us. It's the reason why I can't stand here before you all today and give you a perfect understanding of the Trinity. Nobody can. No amount of time, no amount of money can buy you that sort of knowledge. So my goal here today is not to have you and present to you the God that we comprehend fully. But what I hope to do is to, as we go through Scripture, as we theologize, as we seek to learn and understand who God has revealed himself, that we would find moments, that we would see glimpses of his glory, and that we would have wonder in that revelation. So with that said, I want to go ahead and start us off on the oneness of God, particularly rooted and grounded in the Old Testament. I'm gonna do a little bit of what is something that is often called theological grammar. What theological grammar is, if you think about the, the purpose of grammar in our English or in our languages, we utilize grammar to form these boundaries of how we convey ideas. It's through grammar that we can find a vehicle to adequately explain and espouse something to each other. In the same way, theological doctrines form kind of this boundary of our reflection. It enables us to be able to have right conversations about God to keep us from falling off the tightrope of theology, either into heresy or falling into idolatry. I'm going to do a little bit of theological grammar, and we're going to have to put our our thinking caps here on for a second because it's going to be a little bit... It's going to take a second here, so bear with me. But we're going to do so through the help of a medieval theologian by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas, in his own systematic theology, which is Summa Theologica, which simply means the highest of theologies, one of the things that he opens up with is this doctrine of God. And one of the earliest parts of his doctrine of God is he talks about this idea of the doctrine of simplicity. And so the past two weeks, Travis has been talking about the nature of God and the work of God and divine attributes. I don't want to go over that again, but what I want to do is I want to just briefly touch on something here that's important about divine attributes. When we think about the divine attributes of who God is, when we talk about things like his justice, his mercy, his his eminence, his transcendence, when we speak of these things, oftentimes we have a way of viewing them as almost parts or descriptions of God's being. We say, we look in his divine actions and we see God acting justly. We see him acting mercifully. But when we really understand God, if he is really an immutable being, that is, is, he's a being that does not change in the way that we change, then it's inappropriate to view God's attributes in this way. There's something called the doctrine doctrine of simplicity, and in the doctrine it says God is an indivisible being in that he has no parts. What this means is that when we talk about God's divine attributes, a lot of theologians will point this out, we really aren't dealing with adjectives that are descriptions of God's being, but we're dealing with adverbs, things that are describing God's works and his actions. And most importantly, in every divine act, all of God's attributes are at work, which means that when we see God acting mercifully, he is also being just. When we see him acting out of love, he's acting out of all of his other attributes. And this becomes a really significant boundary line, this idea of theological grammar that's going to help us in trying to understand what do we mean when we speak of the oneness of God. Because one of the tendencies that we have, and anybody who's probably gone anywhere into Trinitarian theology, is we have a tendency to try to play a numbers game. How do we fit the number three into the number one? Anybody who's played such a numbers game knows you can't win that game. Three can't fit into the number one. And what I want to espouse today is that when we look at Scripture, when we really see Scripture speaking of the oneness of God, it's not about numeration. We need not get into a numbers game when we talk about the Trinity and we talk about the oneness of God. And that's what Aquinas is going to kind of help us understand. Aquinas makes a very profound statement. God is not in a genus. I'm going to go ahead and read a quote from Aquinas he says this a thing can be in a genus in two ways either absolutely and properly as a species contained under a genus or as being reducible to it as principles and privations but in neither way is God in a genus all right let me explain what he's talking about here what is a genus? exactly I'm about to explain that so let me use the example of zoology here for a second not that God is an animal or anything but let me use this as an example If I were to tell you a genus of Canis, which is where we get the term canine from, you can probably espouse what's within that genus. There are different species that reside within a genus. You have wolves, you have foxes, you have dogs that reside within the genus of Canis. Now, a genus is what unifies all three of these species together. It's something that we look at a fox and we say, what is in a fox, what's in a wolf, and what's in a dog, all makes them a part of the same genus. But nevertheless, they are privations. They are things that make wolves, dogs, and foxes distinct from one another. Things that we can look at them and we can say, okay, these are differences. Now, here's the profoundness of Aquinas. Because oftentimes when we talk about God, when we talk about his being, we have a tendency to put him into a category. We say God resides in this category of being. He resides within this genus. But if God is a simple being, that is, he has no parts, if He is really immutable and that there is no change in God, then there cannot be specification, which means that God does not share attributes potentially with other beings. He alone is God. He alone is being. Catherine Sodringer, she explains it this way, recognizing, I think, the significance of Aquinas. She says, God is rather simple, holy, and inexhaustibly God, uniquely God. But genus, kind, rests on a distinction of species within a larger whole. Species actualizes a difference within a genus. But there can be nothing larger, nothing unrealized that stands beyond God in his unique life. He does not then belong in a genus, nor can he be reduced to a principle as if God were the highest of any kind of thought or movement. Nor can God's existence, even his unique existence, mark out who God is apart from all else that exists. Here's the point. When we speak of God, when we reflect on who he is, we have to be careful about the categories that we use for our reflection. If God is really beyond space, time, matter, and form, then he's beyond number as well. So then a fair question comes up. What do we do with these declarations of oneness in Scripture? So we're going to talk about the Shema, and the Shema just comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. It's the Hebrew word for hear. So oftentimes Jews, they would recite the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Something that a lot of scholars have noticed and have often note is that in all the instances where God declares His oneness, it's always within the backdrop of idolatry. Deuteronomy 6.4, if you go back to Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4 is the second retelling of the Ten Commandments. The first one was in Exodus 20. Deuteronomy 4 is the second retelling. And within the context of Deuteronomy 4, there's this prohibition against idolatry. Do not worship any other gods. If you go to Deuteronomy 5, the same conversation about idolatry continuously comes up. And then we get to to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and we hear God declaring himself to be one. And if we continued on into Deuteronomy 6, the prohibition against idolatry continues. The point is this. It's not that God is one in number. It's that he alone is. There are no other gods. There is no class of being. There is no genus that God resides in. We don't speak of God as abstract divinity. If you ever have conversations with people about God, sometimes they'll say, well, I think God is a spirit up here, or I think we share and participate in this divinity and in the lives that we live. But the reality is, is God is not even principle. He simply is. He's beyond all understanding and all categories that we can possibly seek to place him in. And this is so significant for us because as a theologian, we're constantly trying to Place ourselves in proper placement. We think somehow that because we sometimes talk about who God is and that we're sometimes in the context of ministry and doing it in the context of ministry, that we don't potentially cross the line into idolatry. But the risk and fear of idolatry is always present in our theologizing. That's what, make Tom, no, that's what makes Thomas Aquinas so much so radical here. Because what he's doing is at the very outset of his theology, he's trying to recognize the fact that even in talking about God, we have to be careful by the very categories that we seek to God to place in and our understanding of him. What about other contexts outside the Shema? Exodus 15:11 in the children's ministry, this has been our verse for the past couple of weeks, so it really stuck out to me. But Exodus states, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The point to this question is that there is no other gods. God alone is. He alone stands as God. This is what is oftentimes in theology referred to as unicity, which means the perfect uniqueness of God. Isaiah 44 Writes it this way, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no other God. Again, God's declaring His uniqueness. The fact that He alone is God. There are no other gods. There is no other being that can share His being. And so when we look at the landscape, Of the Old Testament here with the oneness of God, what I want to try to point to is that this radical oneness, this idea of the fact that the oneness of God is a declaration of his unicity, his perfect uniqueness, his aseity, his perfect independence and freedom, that he is simply because he is. That when we see in the Old Testament, as we're about to look at, there's these images of multiple figures that start to appear within the life of Israel, where God appears in multiple images. And scholars look at that and they say, oh, well, the Israelites started off believing in other gods and eventually they started worshiping one god. But I don't think that's the case. I think the Israelites always understood something unique about their god, something that stood other than who they were. So with that, we're going to do a little bit of biblical exegesis here, and we're going to take a look at several, at dual and tri-theophanies. Now, what is a theophany? A theophany is simply a divine appearance or a manifestation of the divine presence in a passage. And so I'll show you a couple examples of this in the Old Testament. We're going to look first at Genesis 18 and 19. We're going to look at Exodus 11 and 12, which is the Passover event. And then we're going to highlight the angel of the Lord passages throughout the Bible first one I want to point out here is Genesis 18. In the context of Genesis 18, God appears before Abraham as three men. And the unique thing about this passage, and I don't have it up here, but the unique thing is, is that Abraham repeatedly refers to him that is the Lord in the singular, and yet the three men speak in the plural, which is unusual. It's not something that, that we would readily expect, and yet that's what occurs. But it becomes really clear here at the end of Genesis 18, when after Abraham's hospitality, the three men walk away and Abraham's falling behind. And starting in verse 16, Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, I want to point this out. In passages like these, it's always very important to pay attention to pronouns. Pay attention to who's doing what. Because a lot of times, this gives us an indication of how we should be interpreting a passage. The Lord says, that is Adonai, Yahweh, says, I will go down to the city. And then what do we see in verse 22? So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. God's saying he's going to go down to the city, and yet one stays with Abraham, but these two men go down. That's important, because then when we get to Genesis 19, the two angels, which, by the way, I do just want to make one quick note here. I know this lecture isn't on angelology or anything, or the agents of God. That's coming up in a couple weeks but there is a common misconception we have a common misunderstanding of how the Bible actually regards angels and other heavenly beings in the unseen realm. Angels is not a class of being. In other words, it's not like you and I, when I say human, we have a very distinct type of being in our mind. But when we say angel, we often do that. We think of a very distinct being and a class of being that angels all participate and share in. But the term Angel itself means messenger, and it's not a description of a heavenly being as much as a function of a heavenly being. It's a job that a heavenly being has. Another example of this is with cherubs in the Old Testament. Cherub means guardian, and cherubim are throne room guardians. Again, it's not about their class of being, but it's about their function, the way that they're functioning here. So we shouldn't be surprised that two images of Yahweh are being referenced as angels here. Because again, it's not describing his being, it's describing his function in this passage. I'm not going to go through the whole Sodom and Gomorrah saga. We're probably all fairly familiar with it. But I do want to point out something very fascinating that happens here. After Lot leaves Sodom and Gomorrah, and he flees, and the judgment comes to pass, verse 24 in chapter 19, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Justin Martyr, who was uh, an apologist in the 2nd century, a very famous text is his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, where he asks Trifo, what does he do with this verse? Because it's very clear that there's a singular divine action, but there's two divine agents. There's two Adonais here. And again, if we regard the Shema as numeration, I am Lord your God, I am one, there's a conflict here. But if oneness is not a declaration of numeration but a declaration of God's uniqueness, his aseity, then this isn't in conflict. Another passage, and I'm not going to go into excruciating detail because I, I, I wrote an article on the website. So if you really want to get into this, go read the article. And there's another person, an Old Testament um, professor uh, by the name of Meredith Klein, who wrote a very famous and influential article called The Feast of Coverover. And when he does, he evaluates the Passover event. But I want to point this out in Exodus 12, 22-23, that God is talking about what's to occur at Passover, and he gives very distinct instructions in chapter 12. He says this, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through... To strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over Pesach, the door, and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike. Now, a very clear question that comes from this is who is the destroyer? If you jump back to Exodus 11, in particular 11:4, 4, Yahweh declares that he's going to go in and strike the Egyptians with the plague. That he personally is going to go in and be the destructing agent against the Egyptians. And yet here we see a destroyer. Jump ahead to Exodus twelve twenty nine. In the description of the event, again, Yahweh is the one who descends and performs the destruction. This invokes a very significant and important question. Who's the destroyer? The answer is, it's Yahweh. Yahweh is both the one who passes over, and by the way, as we sometimes conceive it as his bunny hop motion over houses, but that's not really what's going on here. If you notice, Pesach, passing over, is descending onto the doorpost. God's not detouring somewhere else, he's descending on something, and the purpose of that descent is to impede the entrance of the destroyer into the home. We think about the cross here for one second. Again, we're not talking about Christology or atonement, but we think about the cross and the fact that Christ is referred to as the Passover lamb. And what we see at the cross is not this moment where God hops over the cross. He inflicts the fullness of his wrath at it. That's what we see here. God stands in the door. He covers over the door, and he impedes his own wrath from entering the home. This is a dual theophany here that we see occurring. Another indication of this is in the angel of the Lord passages. I'm going to quickly go through these. There are so many of these, by the way, in the Old Testament. I don't have time to go through every single one of them. But I want to focus here on Exodus 3. And this is the burning bush saga when Moses has this encounter with God out of the burning bush. And I want to point out here that the angel of the Lord is the one who descends on the burning bush. And yet we see in verse 4 when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God. See, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And if we jump down to verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was too afraid to look at God. Here's something I want to point out about these angel of the Lord passages that we're going to look at. Oftentimes, biblical authors, in their conversations and discussions about the angel of the Lord, they blend and they blur the line between Yahweh and the angel of the Lord. And that's on purpose. Because you notice here, the angel of the Lord descends, and yet God speaks. And not only is it God speaks, but he refers to himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And we know that this is simply isn't just an angelic being in the heavens, that God is actually here because not only is Moses told to remove his sandals because it's holy ground, but he also hides his face because he doesn't want to look at God. He knows what it means to look at a holy God. These lines between the angel of the Lord and between Yahweh, they're blurred. Jump ahead, Exodus 23, 20 through 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have repaired. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Michael Heiser, in his book, Unseen Realm, he has a whole chapter on this. What's entitled, What's in a Name? And he takes apart this idea of the name, which, by the way, is going to come up in the New Testament when we get to the Trinity here in a second. But what is in a name? Well, if we look at Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 5, and verse 11, I think it becomes very clear what we're referring about. This is about the tabernacle and the fact that when the tabernacle followed Israel on their wilderness journeys, God's presence would descend on the tabernacle and would be there. Notice the description of God's presence. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, I I will argue this in the New Testament, the name of God is the divine presence of God. To have an angel of the Lord that has the name of God in him Is to say he is God. This distinction is blurred. Judges 2, 1 through 3. Again, you see the same thing. The angel Lord is speaking. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Again, there's this blurring of the lines between Yahweh and between the angel Lord. So let me reiterate this before we really start getting deep deep in the trinity. I think we do somewhat of a disservice and I think we run into the risk of heresy as well as idolatry when we espouse that the oneness of God is somehow number. When we try to make God into a creature in our creaturely world. I think when we look at the landscape of the Old Testament, when we see God manifesting himself in the life and ministry of Israel, what we recognize, we don't see a God who is simply one in number. But we see these instances of dual and tritheophanies where God is appearing in multiple images. And notice that the biblical authors never seem to want to explain that. They simply state it. It's almost like as if it's supposed to be somewhat obvious to its audience. And we're detached from the original audience. In some of these instances, we're 3,000 years removed from these events. But yet, for the original biblical audience, there is no conflict between the God who appears in these dual and tri-theophanies and the God who declares himself to be one. There's some other passages that I don't have time to get into. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, oftentimes Elohim, the plural of El, which is simply God in the Hebrew language, is espoused to be the Trinity. Another example of this is Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. You see this personified wisdom. And wisdom declares, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Wisdom here is something that exists before creation. The early church often latched onto this and tied a connection between the Logos and John 1. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Psalms 110 The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus had a heyday with the Pharisees on this. He asked him in Matthew 22, who's the Messiah? And they said, it's the son of David. And then he goes, well, if it's the son of David, why is the Lord saying to my Lord? Another passage where we, that serves as significance there. All right. Now we're going to go back to the task of theological grammar. And our doctrine of the Trinity. Well, actually, we're going to take a look at scripture here for one second. I remember now where I was going. All right. So what we're going to do is we're kind of painting with broad strokes here. We're going to start with the, with the just declarations. Where does the doctrine of the Trinity come from? Because anybody who reads the Bible very quickly will know the term Trinitas, that is Trinity, doesn't appear in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. And yet there was a reason why the early church started to regard and read biblical passages and interpret it triunely. There was a purpose for that. One of the earliest indications that we see of that is the baptismal formula in Matthew 28:19. that when Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the end of Matthew, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. By the way, if we believe in three gods and not actually in a triune God, why is it name singular? Notice, he's not saying the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but it's the name singular. Because again, we're speaking of a perfectly unique being. Not in numeration, but in singularity. The fact that he alone is God. And even in the name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not speaking of three different gods. We're not tritheists. We don't believe in three gods. Very early on, we start to see this. We also see it in, and I have on here, Matthew 3, which is the baptism of Jesus, where he's present. But then the dove, the Holy Spirit, descends upon him, and the Father speaks from the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We have Trinity being revealed here. In the early church, when they started having councils dealing with different heresies, from the earliest indications that we can tell, when they got together and started writing creeds, they got together and they said, when you baptize, what do you say? Who do you baptize to? Because if you baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then you're not baptizing into creatures. As some espouse that the Son was a creature of the Father, a created being of the Father. To say that you baptize into the name singular signified something. Another indication that we see of this is in Pauline triads. That is in these places where Paul starts to speak of, speak of three. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, he says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. One Spirit, one Lord, one God. And by the way, Paul, when he uses God in the nominative is theos, it's exclusively referring to God the Father. That's something that's unique to Paul. Another example of this, Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is o- over all and through all and in all. Again, we see Trinity coming through in these creedal decorations by Paul. Other examples of this we don't have time to get into, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Paul does the same thing, but it's over a longer extended series of passages, and he also does the same thing in Titus. He repeatedly does these triads. Why? Because he's viewing God as the triune God. All right, so with that, now let's do a little bit of theological grammar here, and we're going to get into some things that kind of started off in the early church here. And by the way, I, I will say this real quick as, a, as somebody who also studied church history, I think we're in a major need to study the history of the church. And I'll tell you why, because in using analogy, oftentimes we get on genealogy websites and we do 23andMe, and we want to figure out where did we come from as people. And I think in a lot of the same ways, spiritually, and religiously, there's a desire to know where we came from. There's a reason why we speak about the God as the triune God. These men, early on in Christianity, they didn't have the luxury of some of the language that we have today. They fought the battles so that you and I wouldn't have to fight them. Yaroslav Pelikan, he's an Eastern Orthodox Church historian. He put it in talking about tradition in one of his books, he put it this way Tradition is the living faith of the dead, not the dead faith of the living. I think there's something meaningful to us going back and reflecting on some of these struggles, on these reflections that the early church fathers had. And I think there's a need for that within the church. Something that they did very early on is they created a distinction. So you're you probably are familiar with the term of person. Oftentimes, how we talk about God and Trinity, we say one substance in three persons. What is a person? Well, as a person is really a combination of two things. It's a combination of procession and mission, or to put it in modern theological dictum, immanent and economic trinity. What does that mean? Well, the procession is the inner life of the trinity, which constitutes the eternal relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's the trinity that we can't directly perceive— in the works of God. It is God as he is eternally subsisted as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the imminent trinity. The economic trinity is the work and revelation of the trinity in the divine missions which constitutes the sending of the Son from the Father and the Holy Spirit from the Father through the Son. I have in parentheses here a Latin term called filioque, which if anybody has knows anything in church history is a pretty bold statement to make and It's what constituted the split between the Eastern and Western Church in the 7th century. I'm I'm kind of pointing to what I think here on that um, front. But the mission, the economic trinity, is the divine mission. Because when we read Scripture, we see that the Son is not only that which has eternally subsisted with the Father, but the Son is also He who is sent by the Father in the Incarnation. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to us and indwells within us. There's this sending, and a part of that is a specific purpose, a mission that the Son performs as well as the Holy Spirit. Now, within the early church, there was a couple of ways. How do we actually recognize divine processions and missions? How do we do that? Well, there were two tendencies within the early church. The first one is distinction of source. They often view the Father as the uncreated, the Son as the only begotten, and the Spirit as the spirated—that that is, the breathed. Now, let me point out something here. If we're really going to be, this is where theological grammar becomes healthy, helpful, if we're really going to espouse the doctrine of simplicity here, then technically, Father as uncreated is not something that's unique to the Father. It's something that also the, the Son and the Spirit share. Because remember, We're not partialists. We don't believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are parts of divinity. God is indivisible. There are no parts. This is where certain doctrines become helpful boundary lines of our reflection. But what the early church recognized is that the Father does not proceed from the Son and from the Spirit. If you read Scripture, the Son and the Spirit proceed from the Father, but not vice versa. The Father is the source of the Trinity. He is the source of of the triune life. The Son is the only begotten, and we're going to explain exactly what that means, because I know that sometimes we can misinterpret exactly what what that means, but John used that language quite often, and it's one of the reasons why the early church adopted it. The Spirit aspirated. God breathes the Holy Spirit into his disciples. The other way that the early church recognized distinctions within the Trinity, that is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was this distinction of relation. The Father is in relationship with the Son. The Son is in relationship with the Holy Spirit and with the Father. If we're espousing something like modalism or if we're espousing something like tritheism, then some of this language doesn't make any sense. Augustine, in his work on the Trinity, he really lands on this concept of love and of knowledge. And we'll see that in some of the biblical language why Augustine is doing this. But he writes it this way in talking about the distinction of relation that occurs here he goes here you are then when I who I who am engaged on this search love something there are three I myself what I love and love itself for I do not love love unless I love it loving something because there is no love where nothing is being loved so then there are three the lover and what is being love and love something that we're going to hint on here, and I want to really espouse this for one second. The unity of the Trinity, that is the unity of the triune life between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is constituted of love. The Father, as the lover, loves the Son, and the Son is the beloved of the Father. And the Holy Spirit, as that which is love, is what unifies the Father and the Son. Here's something really important. Why not four? why not five persons? Why three? Something in the early church that they latched on to, and I think this is actually really, really important here, and I think it's helpful, is that the Holy Spirit, as the love which subsists between the Father and the Son, is what unifies them. The procession of the Holy Spirit is not just a sequence, it's a completion. It's a fulfillment. The Spirit flows from the love that the Father has for the Son. It unifies them. It's not just the third. It's that which unifies the Father and the Son. So what is the Trinity? (laughs) Well, I think the Athanasian Creed kind of explains it the way that I think is best to be explained. In the Athanasian Creed, it says that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-equal. What I want to emphasize here is that line where it says, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence, because that's always the risk of the Trinity. Our language should never be one of separation. We should never say the Father is separate from the Son and the Son is separate from the Spirit. We should never do that. Notice I've been using the term distinction. Because we can recognize something as distinct without saying that it's divided or separate. I'm going to point out that way uh, an analogy, this idea of begetting in a second, about how that actually pertains to this idea of distinction. But it's inappropriate for us to say the essence, that is the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is divided or separated. We cannot say that. But neither can we espouse that father son and holy spirit as divine persons or simply one person manifested in three different ways that's modalism we can't do that now i want to point out something here notice that the athanasian creed isn't describing god here it's simply recognizing the boundaries of our reflection and i want to take one quick moment here to say it is important for us in our Trinitarian theology not to espouse that somehow we're describing God or somehow that we're coming to a perfect knowledge of who he is, but rather it's recognizing the declarations of Scripture and recognizing the boundaries of where we can and cannot go in our reflections. Theological grammar is what's being had here. Now I want to focus, now that we've kind of done broad strokes, I want to focus on the procession of the Son in particular. In the early church, they adopted this idea of begetting, and it's an analogy which restricted a belief in the creation of the Son because what is begotten cannot be created, and it's something that's exclusive to the Son. The Son is exclusively the only begotten. Now, before anybody says, okay, wait a second here, sounds heretical, they're getting this from John. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, in the Greek it's the monogenes, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, who has made him known. John repeats this in John 3.18. He also repeats it in his first epistle in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 9. Now, what, is, what do they mean by this idea of begetting? The idea of begetting and the reason why they adopted it as this idea against creation, my wife and I are having our first baby, and out of all the fears and anxieties that I have, as odd as it is going to be for me to say this, I'm not afraid that my baby is going to be born a horse. I'm not afraid that my baby is somehow going to be born a dog or a cat or any other animal. Why? Because that which is going to be born from us, is going to be gotten from us, is going to be of the same nature. That is human. The early church adopted this idea of this Johannine language, this language from John about begetting, because what it is necessitated that the son's procession from the father, as that of being begotten, means that he had to have the same nature as the father. Again, not dividing the essence, the substance. The son has to have the same essence as his father. Now, what about, was there a time in which the son was not, as Arius said? Was there a time in which the son wasn't begotten? What's in a name here for a second? A lot of times people in theology will say that the term father and son and Holy Spirit, that these are terms that are simply metaphors or analogies because God does not have any gendering. And I I agree that God is not gendered in the sense of him being masculine or female. Again, if we believe that God is beyond time, space, matter, and form, then we really shouldn't posit a gender onto his being. But Nevertheless, God communicates himself as father and he communicates himself as son. And there's something important here about that. We cannot simply brush it aside. If the Father is truly eternal, that is that he is the eternal one that has always existed, and that means that he's eternally been Father. There was a time in which I wasn't Father, but I became Father. But for the Father, if he is eternal, then that relationship between Father and Son has to be an eternal existence. It has to be an eternal relation. That is, he has to be eternally Father, and the Son has to be eternally Son. There cannot be a time in which the Son wasn't. The Son has always existed. This is referred to in the early church as eternal generation, the fact that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. There's another example of this, and I'm actually going to pass it due to time, but it's John 17, 24 to 26. And by the way, we're going to deal a lot with John 17 here tonight because John 17 is probably one of the most profound books on the Trinity or chapters on the Trinity. The prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is, is truly a spectacular thing if you've never spent the time to really delve into it and to study it. But I do want to point out in verse 26, I may know to them your name. Notice here this name coming up. Name is not just a metaphor. It actually means something here. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We're going to get to the significance of the Trinity and soteriology. That is the doctrine of salvation in a second. So the Council of Nicaea, which was against Arius, who espoused that there was a time in which the Son was not, that is, he was a created being, makes this declaration on the Son. It states, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, monogenes, notice that, that is from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being. Nicaea takes this language of only begotten, and the reason why they did that is because Arius was saying he was created, a different, a separate substance from God. But that which is begotten cannot be separated. That's why Nicaea adopted this language of begetting. Now let's talk about the relationship between father and son. Father and son are ultimately unified in multiple ways we see within Scripture. They're unified in will and work, to give the example of John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Augustine, in his work on the Trinity, he explains and kind of delves into this idea, to this verse, In this way, he says, He does not do other things likewise like a painter copying pictures he has seen painted by someone else, nor does he do the same things differently, like the body forming letters which the mind has thought. The working of the Father and the Son is equal and indivisible, and yet the Son's working comes from the Father. I want to point out here, like a painter copying pictures, oftentimes, I think a problem within the church and how we talk about the Trinity is that we may profess God to be one, that is, we worship a unique and a singular being, but nevertheless, we view the relation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as functional tritheism. We see the Father do something, we see the Spirit do something, we see the Son do something, but somehow these works are disconnected. They're separated. When we look at these scriptures that are speaking of this unified will, this work, that the Father and the Son are co-workers in this work, and what Augustine's pointing out here, what this means is that whenever the Son does something, the Father and the Holy Spirit are doing the same work. Whenever the Father does something, the Son and the Spirit are doing the same work, and vice versa, and so on and so forth. This in the early church was referred to as the doctrine of inseparable operations, And it teaches that all three persons of the Trinity work in every divine act. This is something important here. If we're really going to be Trinitarians and not Tritheists, it's important that we recognize this that whenever the Son speaks, the Father speaks, and the Spirit speaks through him. Whenever the Father works, the Son is there working, the Spirit is there working. These actions are inseparable. How else are they unified? Well, they're unified in knowledge. John 7, 29, I know him for I come from him. He sent me, again, this divine mission, this idea of sending that occurs here. But the reason why the son knows the father is because he is sent by him. He comes from him. He proceeds from him. He is sent by him. They're unified in speech, John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? Notice here, by the way, this idea of mutual indwelling. We're going to talk about a common heretical interpretation here in a second that we often do about the sending of the Son. So I wanted to put a little note here about this mutual indwelling, the fact that while a Son is incarnate and he's here, the Father is dwelling in him. There's union, not disunion. There isn't this spatial separation that we sometimes espouse. John, or Jesus continues, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Father speaks through Jesus. They're unified in glory, John 17, 8. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Father is glorified in the Son, and the Son is glorified in the Father. There's this co-glory. That's going on here. They're unified in their relationship. I want to deal with two interpretive heresies here because I don't know if I'll really have another opportunity to do this. And it fits well within this context. There are two primary interpretive heresies that I think we have a tendency to do, and I've been taught this in the church. Uh, mul- on multiple occasions, and I've heard pastors preach these certain sermons, and I've heard us espouse it, and I really want to push back on two uh what I view to be heretical notions here. The first one is that the divine mission, that is this descent of the Son in the incarnation, is some sort of spatial separation. This is generally how we view it. We say that, okay, before the Son is sent, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are up here in the heavenly realm. Okay, they're up in the heavens, and they're co-eternal, and they're existing, and they're unified in everything. And then in the incarnation, the Son leaves here and goes down here. And in that leaving, in that sending, he ceases to be up here, but he's down here. And the Father and the Spirit are up here. And then, eventually, Christ atones. He gets on the cross. He ascends into heaven, where he now resides, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells within us. But if we're truly Trinitarians, there's there's a couple of problems, not just logically, but also biblically with that. The logical problem here is something that Thomas Aquinas pointed out. When we speak of something being sent, we have a tendency to say that something, when it is sent, it ceases to exist in one place and it now exists in another. If we truly believe that the Son, remember the doctrine of inseparable operations, that means that the Son has the same attributes as the Father and as the Holy Spirit, if we truly believe that, then the Son is omniscient and omnipresent. There is no spatial separation that's occurring in the Incarnation. Is there ascending? Absolutely. The Son is fully in the Incarnation. That's something that we got really make clear. But nevertheless, there isn't the spatial separation that's occurring. I think there's two biblical arguments to be had for that. The first one is from John 1.14, This is a common one that people have pointed out. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The term here is nosen. It's the same word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the tabernacle. God comes and he dwells in the tabernacle in the same way that God dwells in the incarnation and he dwells among us. John continues to write, And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son, the monogenes, again here, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's something that's really important. The prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 66, verse 1 says this. The Lord declares, Heaven is my throne room and the earth is my footstool. By the way, the Ark of the Covenant, probably because of a consequence of Indiana Jones, we somehow seem to think that it's this massive thing, but it's actually pretty small. It's the, it's the, interestingly enough, it's the exact dimensions of a footstool in the ancient world. Because part of the tabernacle is this physical manifestation of the heavenly throne room. It's this image of what is going on in the heavenlies before the Israelites in both the t- tabernacle and the temple. Now, here's something really important. God, when he would descend on the tabernacle, when he descended descend on the temple, his presence was fully manifested. There's a reason why if you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you die because he's fully there. That which is there makes and consecrates things holy. Remember, in the burning bush, take off your sandals for it's holy ground. God is fully there. Now, this is something really important here. God is fully in the tabernacle, but he's not restricted in the tabernacle. He's not restricted in the temple. I think John, in utilizing this idea of tabernacling, God tabernacling among us in the incarnation is a means of saying that in the person Christ, God is fully manifested. He is fully present in the incarnation. Christ is fully divine. Make no mistake. That's not what I'm espousing here, that Christ is somehow restricted in his divinity. No. But nevertheless, Christ in his humanity is not restricted in his presence. He's fully in union with the Father as he's in the incarnation on earth. Another example of this is Ephesians 4, 9 through 10. I'm not going to go there, but one of the things that's fascinating about it is that Paul espouses that at the simultaneous point of Christ's descent into hell, he also simultaneously ascends in glory. And it's fascinating because his use of ascent and descent is not as so much spatial as it's a recognizing that these are simultaneous realities for God, that these are somehow metaphors of his being and of his presence. Again, I think this is something really important that when we espouse the sending of the Son, that we don't espouse a separation in divinity occurring here. The second one, I will I will die on this hill. By the way, because <laughs> I think this is really really important here. Oftentimes, we espouse the cry of dereliction as the cross, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" as a splitting of the Trinity. As we often view it, we say that, the wrath, that God in his holiness turns his back on the Son. There's a couple of reasons why we can't do this. If we really espouse that, then the splitting of the Trinity either constitutes a change of divinity, in that he is no longer immutable, in the form of partialism. So remember, God is not divisible of parts, doctrine of simplicity. Or... We have to espouse that each person is fully divine, and therefore no change in divinity is to be had. Tritheism. I had a professor in undergrad who, want to debate on Facebook, which is not the best place to do theological discourse, um, he espoused this. This is a mistake that theologians make all the time. So I don't, I don't bemoan anybody who makes this mistake, but I do want to point this out here. If we espouse that the lacking of the Son, that is the death of the Son, and the fullness of the Spirit, and the fullness of the Father persists, and there is no changing in divinity, then what we're really espousing is tritheism. That is, we believe in three different gods, not one God. And again, oneness, his unicity, his aseity, his uniqueness, that's what we're espousing here. We don't want to play number games. The other reason why I think this is, becomes biblically problematic is, because of Romans 8, 9 through 11. And then this one is quite profound, actually. Paul, in talking about the resurrection, he talks about the Holy Spirit, which raises the body of Christ. But what's interesting is he does this dialectic, this conversation between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. And what's interesting is that the Spirit of Christ participates in his own bodily resurrection. Here's an eternal truth. Dead things don't do things including dead gods. A dead god can't raise himself from the dead, at least in his humanity, his body. So what is going on at the cry of dereliction? We're not dealing with Christology, and we're not dealing with atonement here today, but I do think it's, it's, because I'm bringing this up, I have to provide some sort of answer of what's actually going on here. In the early church, the answer that was given is probably the best one that I think is going on here, and that's something called two natures Christology. In the two natures, that is in Christ, a singular person, we have two natures, a divine and a human nature. These two natures are not intermingled so as to become one because that would constitute a change in the divine nature, but they're not to be separated as to be two distinct persons. Christ is not two persons, he's a singular person. But when we see these passages in the Bible where Luke says, The Son grows in wisdom and stature. Or he says, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He's not speaking out of his divinity, he's speaking out of his humanity. The human Christ grows in wisdom and stature. The human Christ on the cross experiences the fullness of the divine wrath. That's what's going on there. Now let's talk about the Holy Spirit, and we'll call it a night. John 20, 22, this idea of spiration. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, just like the Father and the Son, the Spirit also has relational unity with the Father and the Son. We see this in the incarnation in Matthew 1 as well as Luke 1. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Virgin Mary, and it's that way that the Son becomes incarnate. The incarnation is a Trinitarian work in the same way that atonement, Salvation is a Trinitarian work, again, doctrine of inseparable operations. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all operate in the same divine work. The Father gives the Spirit, first Thessalonians four eight, therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, as being that which also proceeds from the Son, professes the Son. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3. The Holy Spirit speaks to the significance of the Son. There's also this unity of operations, and I'm not going to go into those passages, but I will say this. In in Corinthians, Paul opens up and he says, I believe it's in chapter 3, your body is a temple of God. And then later on, I think it's chapter 6 or chapter 7, he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then we see in Romans, he says, your body is a temple of Christ. What's going on here? Unity of operations. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, but it's not just the Holy Spirit, a singular person, God dwells in us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what empowers us. Oftentimes when we think of ecclesiology, we think it's just a bunch of human beings coming together and singing a song, but that's not what the church is. The church is a covenant community indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, by God dwelling in us. The Spirit acts as the paraclete. He's the helper, the comforter. The Spirit instructs. John 14:26. But the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance all that I have said to you. He teaches us. He instructs us. He guides us. He is the Spirit of truth. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Again, he's the Spirit of truth. He bears witness about the Father. And lastly, the Spirit indwells believers, convicting and sanctifying them. As Paul powerfully puts it in Galatians 5, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, but those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What a list. The Holy Spirit who indwells us, it sanctifies us. It guides us. It leads us. You don't just believe in an impersonal God. We believe in a personal God that dwells in us. The last thing I'm going to say... I think when we really contrive and we start to understand the Doctrine of the Trinity in this fashion, the significance of it and its implications are clear. Our Doctrine of God and our Doctrine of the Trinity, from which flow all other doctrines, when we think about creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the world. He's the one who created all of us. When we think about us being created in the image of God, the relational God creates us as relational beings. We don't want to do anything here in terms of theological anthropology speaking about who we are, human beings. We don't want to flip it and create an, a God in our own image. But nevertheless, from an understanding of the Trinity, I think it helps us to understand who we are, created in the image of God. We also see this coming out in salvation. There's this doctrine in the early church called theosis. And what theosis is... Oh, I went too far. There we go. Theosis... It's a patristic doctrine which emphasized our union with God and our salvation. Athanasius and in the Incarnation, which, by the way, is one of the most profound works in all of Christian theology. If there's one book I could recommend, it would be that one in the early church. But he makes this bold statement. I want to explain it. For he was made man that we might be made God. Now, do not be mistaken. Athanasius is not espousing that in our salvation we become gods. That's not what Athanasius is espousing here. But what he is recognizing, as John 17, 26 states, I may know to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our salvation is not about an eternal existence. It's not about being in heaven. It's not about some sort of rewards or crowns we get. What our salvation is found and rooted in is a relationship that we're welcomed into. And that's a triune relationship. In the person Christ, we are welcomed into something that he has as his birthright, as Colossians 1 states, but we are brought into via adoption. What Athanasius is espousing here is something that 2 Peter 1.4 says, that we become one with the divine nature. In our salvation, we are welcomed to an inner relationship that before we had no access to, but in the person Christ, we are brought into it. It's a union with God. Our understanding of the Trinity ought to impact the rest of our theology. And that's probably the biggest thing. If I could summarize this whole lecture for you, it's that. That in our theologizing, if we don't direct ourselves back to our doctrine of God, grounding ourselves in the wonder of His being, we're not doing theology right. Our theology is born out of worship and it evokes worship from us. That's the God that we worship. That's the triune God. That's the God who's perfectly unique, who's perfectly other than. All right. You all have been fantastic. At the very end of the handouts, I do have a list of resources. If you're ever interested in studying this more and going deeper, um, you can always check out some of those works there. So with that, have a wonderful night. You all are dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.